passion for God and compassion for our neighbor. Reaching our region and beyond with the life-changing message of Jesus Christ. This is Crosswinds Church. And now, here's Pastor Jordan Gowing. All right, well, one of the things that we uh, generally do here at Crosswinds is we work our way through a book of the Bible uh, from the beginning of the book to the end of the book. And uh, that's what we just finished last week with 2 Samuel. We finished our time there. Next week, we are starting in 1 Thessalonians. And one of the things that, one of the reasons why we do that is we are a church that takes very seriously uh, Paul's words to the church in Ephesus that come from Acts chapter 20, verse 27. He's talking to uh, that church about how he can look back on his life and say, I've preached the whole counsel of God. And so uh, the, the general way that we as a church preach the whole counsel of God is by going from, a, from the beginning to the end of a book. Uh, but sometimes we consider what are some areas that we haven't addressed recently, um, and uh, then we try to do a standalone sermon or short series on that. And uh, one of those topics is the issue of money. I looked back over my tenure here at Crosswinds. I have been here for almost 11 years. And uh, over the course of that time, I have preached once on the topic of money. Now, there have been passages that we've looked at when we go through 1 Timothy or Mark or Malachi that address this topic, but we haven't really spent too much time looking at money. And the sobering reality is that that is a far cry from Jesus himself because Jesus regularly talked about money. Former pastor Randy Alcorn in his book, The Treasure Principle, points out that at least 15% of Jesus' teaching talked about money. And that's more than all of his discussion on heaven and hell combined. So Jesus clearly had no qualms talking about how we are as followers of Jesus to handle our money. Now, there's a reason why we as a church oftentimes don't talk about it today. One reason being that, well, there's a lot of churches that abuse this topic. They abuse the issue of finances, and so we don't necessarily want to be lumped in with people like that. But I think a deeper reason why we don't like a church talking about money, we get defensive about the topic of money, is because of something that Jesus actually makes really clear here in our passage this morning. Jesus, as the creator of the universe, and by extension, of course, as the creator of, of every single one here, you, me, Jesus knows that there is a connection between our hearts and our money. Jesus makes this striking claim that if God is not the Lord of our money, then, then he's probably not Lord at all in our lives. And before we jump into the topic of money, I think we have to have this at the forefront of our mind. The question of money is ultimately a question of lordship. We, when we look at money, we're asking ourselves, does God have the right to tell us to influence us in the topic of what we do with our finances. And that's the lens through which we're going to look at this topic this morning. We're going to be in Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. We're going to consider the connection between our treasure and our hearts in three parts. So let's go ahead and jump in. I mentioned 
Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24. But since we are starting cold here in this passage, I want to take a few moments to set the scene. All right, so, so our passage, Matthew chapter 6, is found in the midst of a sermon Jesus preached. It's called the Sermon on the Mountain, Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. And, and this portion of Jesus' sermon specifically looks at what it means to be his disciple. So Jesus, in other words, he, he's, he's saying, if you want to be my disciple, this is what you should be like. So we have to read Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, in light of Matthew chapter 5, verse 20 where Jesus kind of sets the scene and he says this, for I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds that of the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. In other words, Jesus is saying that if if you're going to be my follower, you need to be different than the hypocritical scribes, different than the hypocritical Pharisees, and, and there are three key areas of how following me, following Jesus, is profoundly different than following Pharisees or the way of the Pharisees. So in Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 through 48, Jesus starts by looking at at what it's like to, to follow him. And that section looks at God's original purpose behind giving the law, giving the Old Testament. It's not about external actions at all, but it's it's supposed to be about the heart. It's a heart that is supposed to genuinely follow God. So Jesus, as he's explaining the Old Testament, says, you know, it's not enough for you to just not kill people, not murder people. Because if you have unrighteous anger in your heart, that's something that needs to be addressed. In the same way, Jesus says, you know, it's not enough for you just to not commit adultery with people. Because if you look at someone else lustfully, then you've committed adultery in your heart. The message of this section is is very clear. God is deeply concerned with our hearts. Now next, in Matthew chapter 6, verses 1 through 18, the second section, Jesus looks at our motivation for following him. The motivation for being a disciple of Jesus. Jesus addresses some common religious actions of his day, actions such as prayer and giving and fasting, and he essentially says in those verses, God isn't all that impressed with your external actions unless there's a heart connected to those actions. In fact, that's really what God cares about. He cares about the heart that is behind those actions. Again, underlying message of of this section is God is deeply concerned with your heart. And so it's that theme that we would expect to see in this next section, in our section, Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 34. And we're not going all the way to 34 this morning. We're just going to 24, but it's a part of this broader focus on not worrying. Again, it's an issue of the heart. Who holds your heart? It's a question of loyalty. It's a question of allegiance. And so before we even get into our text this morning, it's clear that Jesus' understanding of righteousness, his understanding of, of what it means to be his disciple is a matter of your heart. 
Let's jump into our text, first looking at verses 19 through, or 19 and 20. It says this, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal, but lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. The message of this first section is clear, that we as followers of Jesus are to be concerned with eternal treasures and not temporary ones. As a follower of Jesus, you should be concerned with eternal treasure and not temporary treasures. Part of being a follower of Jesus is to have the right mindset, that we should be concerned with eternal riches, not with temporary riches. And and Jesus here, I want to make sure I'm very clear, Jesus is not saying that it is inherently wrong to have earthly wealth. People oftentimes will misquote 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 9, and say that, the, the, that money is the root of all evil. That's not what it says. It says the love of money is the root of all evil. We see in the Old Testament that money can be a sign of God's blessing. You only have to go to the Old Testament and look at the patriarchs, people like Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. They are blessed with financial prosperity. But at the same time, you also have passages in the Bible that point out that it is not just the the blessed, God-honoring people that are wealthy. The Psalms are filled with examples of wealth of the wicked. So we read in Psalm 73, one of my favorite Psalms, for I was envious of the arrogance when I saw the prosperity of the wicked. In other words, the Bible, its teaching on wealth is that it is morally neutral, Wealthy or wicked people can be wealthy. God-honoring people can be wealthy. The question isn't a matter of wealth. Instead, it is a question of your heart. Is your heart guided by a pursuit of wealth, of laying up treasures on earth? Jesus unequivocally tells his followers that they should be concerned with not temporary, not, not earthly treasure, but eternal treasure. That is what we should pursue. Now consider two implications of Jesus' words here in these these verses. First, Jesus points out that a focus on eternal treasure rather than earthly treasure is a form of wisdom. Earthly treasure by its very nature is temporary. It is vulnerable. Earthly wealth will not last forever. Jesus' point when he mentions moths, when he mentions rust, is clear. Earthly things decay. And even if they don't, you will. It is temporary. It is fleeting. But it's also vulnerable, whether it's thieves or a banking crisis or a stock market crash or natural disasters like fire or flood. There's no such thing as a sure thing when it comes to earthly wealth. In contrast, Jesus points out treasure in heaven is eternal. It is secure. The reward that you have in the new creation will never expire, but is eternal. You never have to worry about losing treasure in heaven because of unforeseen circumstances. The FDIC might be reliable, but it is not worth comparing to the assurance that we have from our Heavenly Father. 
And it's with that in mind that this focus on eternal treasure rather than earthly treasure isn't really just an act of obedience, even though it is, but it's also just being smart. It's an issue of wisdom. If my entire life is, is consumed with the, per, the, the pursuit of earthly wealth or if I have earthly wealth and I just spend it all on myself, then I am, to use the language of Jesus, a fool. Jesus uses this language in a parable of a rich man in Luke chapter 12. And he told them a parable saying, the land of a rich man produced plentifully And he thought to himself, what shall I do? For I have nowhere to store my crops. And he said, I will do this. I will tear down my barns and build larger ones. And there I will store all my grain and my goods. And I will say to my soul, soul, you have ample goods laid up many years. Relax, eat, drink, be merry. But God said to him, fool, this night your soul is required of you. And the things you have prepared, whose will they be? So is the one who lays up treasure for himself and is not rich toward God. Jesus' teaching is clear. Building your life around the pursuit of earthly things rather than eternal things is foolish. This is a matter of wisdom. But that leads us to a second point from Jesus' words here in Matthew chapter 6, an implication that if this is a crucial question that every single one of us has to answer, that we need to build up treasure in heaven because not only is that an act of obedience, but it's also just being wise, how do I do it? How do I obey Jesus' teaching here? How do I build up uh, eternal treasure rather than earthly treasure? And, And Jesus actually answers that throughout the Sermon on the Mount. First, Jesus tells us the way we lay up treasure in heaven is by being obedient to God, by being obedient to him. Notice, sometimes, just just flip through Matthew chapter 5, Matthew chapter 6, and notice how often Jesus talks about rewards in this passage. It's intentional as he's talking about money here. So we read in Matthew chapter 5, blessed are you When others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely on my account, rejoice and be glad, for your reward is great in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. In other words, Jesus is saying, if you bear suffering for the name of Jesus, God will reward you in heaven. Another passage, also in Matthew chapter 5. For if you love those who love you, What reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same? The implication, of course, of what Jesus is saying is that if you sacrificially love people who hate you, people who are hard to love, God is watching and he will reward you. Another passage in Matthew chapter 6. Beware of practicing your righteousness before other people in order to be seen by them, for then you will have no reward from your Father who is in heaven. Here, again, Jesus ties the idea of reward with living a life of righteousness, not for other people to see, but rather for God alone to see. And what matters here is not necessarily who sees you or who doesn't see you, but it's a matter of the heart. Why are you doing these things? Reward is tied to the heart. And this is found 
And Jesus is teaching on giving in verse 2, on prayer in verse 5, and on fasting in verse 16. Jesus is telling us that we build up treasure in heaven by living a life that is transformed by the gospel. And yet, I think that there is a second area that Jesus has in mind when he talks about building up treasure, laying up treasure in heaven. And verse 21 sheds light on this. Jesus says this, For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We see this over and over and over in Matthew chapter 6, that God is chiefly concerned with your heart. And here we see how our hearts are tied to our money. That wherever you place your treasure there your heart will be also. That there is an inseparable link between your heart and your money. And if, if we spend all of our money on the things of this world, then we should ask, according to Jesus, what does that tell us about my heart? What does my money tell me about my heart? In the immediate context of Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24, it's pretty clear how we store up treasure in heaven. It's by using earthly, temporary wealth for things of eternal and lasting significance. Jesus says as much. Just a few verses later, at the end of this section, in this broader section, Jesus is talking about how we should prioritize earthly and kingdom things when he says this, but seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness, and all these things will be added to you. So what do we do with our money? Well, before we can even answer that, we have to acknowledge that it reveals our heart. The money that God has entrusted to us is an opportunity to invest in eternal things, using our temporary money to make an eternal impact by participating in the Great Commission. Or... We're going to use our temporary money on temporary things that may not be inherently wrong, but if they are our sole focus, they reveal a troubling picture of our hearts. So Jesus' picture, Jesus' teaching here is clear. We have to be concerned with eternal treasure, not temporary ones. Now, Jesus continues this discussion of our hearts and our money with another powerful declaration. This is our second section here in Jesus' teaching. He tells us this, how you use your money sets the direction of your entire life. How you are using your money is the trajectory of your life. That's what's in view in Jesus' short parable in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23. We'll get to that here in a second. But before we do that, I want to just consider again Matthew chapter 6, verse 21, because this is a very important passage. It makes a very similar claim. We've already read it. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. We've already said it. I'll say it again. There is an intrinsic connection. The way God has made every single one of us, there's a connection between our hearts and our money. And that's, what, that's just the way God created us. So wherever our treasure is, we will find our heart not too far away. 
That's pretty self-evident, right? So the person who puts all of their hope in a big payoff on a big bet on the stock market and the stock market bottoms out and crashes, that's, that's one of the reasons why in 2008 when the financial crisis hit, so many people committed suicide. It's because their heart and their money were tied together. The more stuff that we have, there's not only just the, the well, it, it consumes our time because it's not just the, the price of purchasing us, but we also have to, this continual cost of making sure we get our money's worth. And we have to continue to use our stuff. Our hearts follow where we spend our money. But the inverse is also true. Wherever your heart is, that's where your treasure is as well. Let me put it another way. How you spend your money will generally follow what is most important to you. The things that hold your heart. And again, this is, this is pretty self-evident, right? Imagine you have two people. One of them is a huge sports fan. They're, they're so into sports that they foolishly bring a Kansas City Chiefs jersey to church to preach. <laughs> Completely theoretical here. You've never seen that before. On the flip side, you have someone who just absolutely loves classical music. The way they use their money is going to be different. One person's going to spend their money on sporting events. They're going to spend their money on cable so they can watch the games. They're going to be talking about the games. They're going to ask other people, have you seen the game? The other person, on contrast, is going to spend their money on attending concerts. Why? Because what has captured their hearts? Our money will follow our if you want to see what holds your heart, a good place to start is to, by look, to look at what you spend your money on. Now, if you were to look just broadly, take that, that truth and apply it broadly, you would say, Jordan, one of the things that holds your heart is paying taxes. Obviously, there are certain things like natural gas. I'm passionate about natural gas. It holds my heart. Obviously, there are certain things that are unavoidable, right? So don't apply that to, to literally but there is a general truth there that we, while we spend money on some things that are unavoidable, what does, our, what does the rest of our money say about our hearts and the Lord Jesus? This connection between our hearts and our money is why the gospel spends so much time regularly talking about money in connection with salvation, in connection with repentance, in connection with faith. So, for example, consider the story of Zacchaeus. Zacchaeus in Luke chapter 19, Jesus encounters this man who is a tax collector. He's on the outside of the people of God. No one wants to be around him. And yet Jesus pursues him and Zacchaeus is amazed that Jesus would be interested in a person like him. And in response to this newfound relationship with Jesus, we read these words from Zacchaeus. It says this in Luke chapter 19 verse 8, and Zacchaeus stood and said to the Lord, behold, Lord the half of my goods I give to the poor, and, I have, and if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I restore it fourfold. Zacchaeus' response to Jesus is to give his money away. Notice what Jesus says immediately after this declaration from Zacchaeus in verse 9. 
And Jesus said to him, today salvation has come to this house since he also is a son of Abraham. Now is Jesus saying that Zacchaeus, now that you've given up your money, now you've earned salvation? Is Jesus saying, now that you've done this, now I'll welcome you in? Of course he's not saying that. He's making the exact same connection he does in Matthew chapter 6. He's making this connection between the heart of Zacchaeus and the money of Zacchaeus. He knows that they are connected in a profound way. And this profound change that has come over Zacchaeus, no longer does money and self hold the place of prominence in Zacchaeus' life, but God does. And so he casts down his idol of money and self because he has a new God, the Lord Jesus. His heart and his money are connected and Zacchaeus exercises his faith through what he does with his money. You know, the same thing is true in Mark chapter 10. We see the exact same thing. Jesus is talking to a rich young man, picking up in verse 17. And as he was setting out on his journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? And Jesus said to him, why do you call me good? No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments, do not murder, do not commit adultery, do not steal, do not bear false witness, do not defraud, honor your father and mother. And he said to him, teacher, all these I have kept from my youth. And Jesus, looking at him, loved him. Beautiful phrase there. Loved him. And said to him, you lack one thing, go, sell all that you have and give to the poor and you will have treasure in heaven. And come, follow me. Disheartened by the saying, He went away sorrowful, for he had great possessions. Why does Jesus tell this man that he has to give away all of his money? Is that what it means to become a Christian? No. Jesus is again making the point that he makes in Matthew chapter 6. Our hearts and our money are connected. And if this man were to have Jesus as the Lord over his life. It means he has to get rid of the current Lord of his life, his money, his possessions, his own self. And unlike Zacchaeus, he's unwilling to do so. One more example. This time from John the Baptist. John the Baptist is preaching a message of repentance in preparation for the coming of Jesus. And, and crowds are coming to John. They're flocking to him, asking how they can bear fruit, keeping with repentance. So basically, how can we continue to live out faithful lives to the Lord? Luke chapter 3 tells us what John says. And the crowds asked him, what then shall we do? And he answered them, whoever has two tunics is to share with him who has none. And whoever has food is to do likewise. Tax collectors also came to be baptized and said to him, Teacher, what shall we do? And he said to them, Collect no more than you are authorized to do. Soldiers also asked him, And we, what shall we do? And he said to them, Do not extort money from anyone by threats or by false accusation, and be content with your wages. You notice three times John is asked, what shall we do in order to bear fruit in our lives of following God? And three times John gives separate answers, all having to do with money and possessions. 
Everything that John says here about bearing fruit has to do with what people do with their money. Why? Because there is a connection between our hearts and our money. And that's a theme that we see in all these passages. God is concerned with what we do with our money because of our money's connection with our hearts. Now, it's because of that connection that Jesus goes into a short little parable in Matthew chapter 6, verses 22 and 23 on the effect, the powerful effect, that money has on us. The eye is the lamp of the body. So if your eye is healthy, your whole body will be full of light. But if your eye is bad, your whole body will be full of darkness. If then the light in you is darkness, how great is the darkness? Now, don't get buried in the details of what Jesus is saying here because the overall point he's making is relatively easy to follow. Jesus, in the context of money and the heart, basically says, you know, if your eyes don't work, your whole body is going to be affected by that. And in the exact same way, if your heart has a misplaced desire, your entire life is going to be affected by that. If your heart is setting the wrong trajectory for your life, everything in your life will be affected. In other words, it is incompatible to claim Jesus as the Lord of your life, to claim that he is your king and not have that affect every single part of your life, including what you do with your money. One quote I read decades ago that has just been seared into my brain is from Martin Luther. Martin Luther said, there are three conversions of the Christian life that are necessary, the conversion of the heart, the conversion of the mind, and the conversion of the pocketbook. In other words, if you're going to follow Jesus, it changes everything. It changes the things that you love. It changes your heart. It changes the way you think about things. It changes your mind. And it changes the way that you use your money, your pocketbook. That's why Jesus, in this parable, says that our hearts set the trajectory of the rest of our lives and our money reveals exactly that. Our money is connected to our hearts and how we use our money declares what we think of when we think about God. And it's actually that last statement that Jesus hammers home in our last verse, in verse 24. It's simply this, how I use my money reveals what I think of God. There is no way to hide no way to get around it. Our use of money is a discipleship issue, and because our hearts are connected to our money, our money reveals our thoughts about God. Verse 24, no one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money. Here Jesus cuts to the heart of the matter. How we use our money is ultimately a question not of preference, not of how good we are with a budget, but it's ultimately a question of allegiance. That you will either serve God with your money or your money will be your God. And the word, the word money 
translated here in, in Matthew chapter 6, verse 24. You might have noticed on the slide, it's this word mammon, which has a broader meaning. It's not just money, but it's materialism in general. Stuff, things, possessions. So Jesus is asking, if we were to look at your money, what would it say about who holds your allegiance? Who is your king? God or things? You see the message behind this entire passage? I hope you caught it. It's simply this. God cares about your money because he cares about your heart. If your takeaway from Matthew chapter 6, verses 19 through 24 is that God cares about what I do with my money because he needs it, he wants it. He's got things he wants to do and he's just waiting on me, he needs me. God makes it very, very clear in the Old Testament. No, that's not it at all. Psalm 50, for every beast of the forest is mine, the cattle on a thousand hills. I know all the birds of the hills and all that moves in the field is mine. If I were hungry, I would not tell you. For the world and its fullness are mine. God does not need, God does not want your money. He wants your heart. And he knows that these two things are created because he created you. He knows these two things are created in this inseparable way. Where your money goes, so also goes your heart. Where your heart goes, so also goes your money. And so the question we have to ask ourselves is, has following Jesus, has discipleship, being a disciple of Jesus, has that touched my finances? I'll be real practical right now. What does this mean for you specifically? No idea. I have no idea what this means. We look at Paul's writings to the church in Corinth in 2 Corinthians chapter 9, and he says that they should give, quote, as they have decided in their hearts, not reluctantly or under compulsion. So what does it mean? What does that mean practically? How much should I give? I don't know. But I, should, I would say, Paul, in addition to saying that we should give out of the overflow of our heart, doesn't say that as an out for sacrificial giving, as, as much as it is a call to evaluate our hearts and see if we aren't giving gladly, then we need to do something about our hearts. I don't know how much money you should give, but if Jesus' words are to be taken seriously, it should be something. We should be participating financially in the spread of the gospel to the ends of the earth because our hearts are too valuable not to. Some people will use the idea of a tithe, giving 10% of their income as a guideline for what it should be like. I think there's a lot of wisdom in that, but I would say that's the beginning of the discussion, not the end of the discussion. Some people will point out, well, the idea of a tithe, that, that's an Old Testament concept. It's not found in the New Testament. I would largely agree with that, though the New Testament uses a category on how much you should give on how much Christ has given to you. Kind of raises the bar. 
Paul again in 2 Corinthians chapter 8. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. You know, here's the thing about this discussion. It's not a decision that should be taken lightly. Anything that has to do with the trajectory of your heart, the trajectory of your life, should never be taken lightly. The question of this passage, what can we contribute to the kingdom of God, should be a regular reflection for every single one of us. If you are married, it should be a regular topic of discussion with your spouse. What does it look like for us to follow Jesus more and more in this way? And I would love for nothing more than after this, that you prayerfully considered What is God calling you to do as his follower? And I guarantee that for every person who does that, the direction that God leads you will probably be different. There's not a number in mind. I, I don't have that in mind. The important thing is, again, the heart. Because this is a matter of your heart. God cares about your money because he cares about your heart. Without a doubt, the most transformative instruction in this topic for me comes from Michael O. He's a former missionary to Japan, currently serves as the executive director for a missions organization called the Lausanne Movement, focused on the Great Commission to the ends of the earth. And back in 2011, Michael O. was one of the speakers at the Desiring God conference in the Twin Cities, and that conference focused on the priority of the mission, of the Great Commission in the life of the church. Now, at the time, in 2011, my wife and I, we had just gotten married, and I was in seminary, and we lived in one of the most affluent parts of the Chicago suburbs. So for frame of reference, our apartment was down the street from Michael Jordan's old house, Different square footage, as you can probably imagine there. This is the, you know, a mile away is where the bulls practice. Two miles away is where the bears practice. Very affluent neighborhood. Money was tight. My wife was the primary source of income for our family, roughly $30,000 a year, and and we're just barely making ends meet. I'm working part-time as a janitor at a church, and yet we felt strongly that our limited income was not an excuse to not be generous with our money, and yet at the same time, we were depressed. Like, how on earth can we make any sort of, of impact, contribution to the kingdom of God? And that's where Michael O's talk was so transformative. I just want to read to you a part of, of what he said. The value of money is amazing when it is invested in God's kingdom. The returns are eternal. What is the value of what we are able to give? It's priceless. It's stunning how God can use even the simplest of giving for a glorious, global, eternal impact. Imagine what God could do if you would invest just a portion of what he has given to you for his purposes, for his kingdom, and for his glory, if you make $25,000 a year, you are among the richest 10% of the world. You are uber rich. In fact, if you make $2,500 per year, you are among the richest 15% in the world. 
And if you make $50,000 per year, you are among the richest 1% in the world. And over the course of his talk, Michael O. shares example after example after example of small gifts that make massive differences in the course of global evangelism. But for me personally, the, the most powerful part of his talk was when he illustrated the eternal returns of investing in God's kingdom. You know, if you were to pull out your phone right now, and I'm, I'm okay if you do this, if you want to right now. If you pull out your phone right now, go to Google and type in millionaire calculator, you will get a, a number of hits that basically serve the exact same pur- purpose. It's a simple calculation showing how much you, were to, you would need to save each month and for how long in order to save a million dollars. And maybe you have done that, you've messed around with those calculators in preparation for retirement. But here's where I found Michael O's life, his talk so life-changing. He asked, what if we use these calculators to not determine how much we needed to save for how long before we saved a million dollars? What if we use those calculators to determine how much and how long we should give before we gave the equivalent of one million dollars to the kingdom of God? And Michael O. points out that these calculations are meant to take this large number that seems impossible for us to reach and put it in a spot where it is within reach. It is something that we can attain. He writes, or he says this, if you set aside only $5,000 per year, which is about $415 a month, at 8% return, you'll become a millionaire in 36 years and 10 months. The point, of course, is that the target is in sight. It is doable. But let's say you invest $5,000 per year, again, $415 a month, in global kingdom building. In 36 years and 10 months, you will have been able to invest the equivalent of $1 million in Jesus' name Halloween, kingdom building, eternity-altering global mission work. The point, the target is in sight. It is doable. And then he says, I guarantee you that in heaven, the return on all the funds you invest in the kingdom of God will yield much more than 8%. What wonderful discipleship to be able to tell your kids and your grandkids that you invested $1 million in global missions. That's what building up treasure in heaven, not on earth, looks like. It's to invest in the expansion of the kingdom of God here, throughout our nation, and to the ends of the earth. And what might seem like a minor, insignificant amount will pay incredible, incalculable dividends in the new creation. What if we use these type of, types of calculators to set massive goals, no matter if we find ourselves in our 20s or our 70s? What if we set massive goals for giving to the kingdom of God, knowing that God pays back far better than 8% interest 
a massive global impact is within our reach. But it comes down to the heart. It comes down to our heart. Who holds your heart? The Lord Jesus and the spread of his fame and his name to those who don't know him, whether that is across the street or across the globe? Or is it the things of this earth? Temporary toys. God cares about your money. But only because he cares about your heart. Let's pray. Jesus, I, I pray that you would give every single one of us here this morning the grace to consider deeply the words of Matthew 6 and what that means for us, what you are calling us to do to, as, as the Lord of our lives. I pray that we wouldn't have these reflections from a place of guilt or condemnation or defensiveness or, or pride, but out of gladness for what you have done for us and as a commitment to our King. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. This has been a presentation of Crosswinds Church. More of Pastor Jordan's sermons can be found online at crosswinds.tv. Thanks for being with us, and may God continue to enrich your life.